The Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. Chapter 14, Part 2. Chiloe and Concepcion. Great Earthquake. February 20th. This day has been memorable in the annals of Valdivia for the most severe earthquake experienced by the oldest inhabitant. I happened to be on shore, and was lying down in the wood to rest myself. It came on suddenly, and lasted two minutes, but the time appeared much longer. The rocking of the ground was very sensible. The undulations appeared to my companion and myself to come from due east, whilst others thought they proceeded from south-west. This shows how difficult it sometimes is to perceive the directions of the vibrations. There was no difficulty in standing upright, but the motion made me almost giddy. It was something like the movement of a vessel in a little cross-ripple, or still more like that felt by a person skating over thin ice, which bends under the weight of his body. A bad earthquake at once destroys our oldest associations. The earth, the very emblem of solidity, has moved beneath our feet like a thin crust over a fluid. One second of time has created in the mind a strange idea of insecurity, which hours of reflection would not have produced. In the forest, as a breeze moved the trees, I felt only the earth tremble, but saw no other effect. Captain Fitzroy and some officers were at the town during the shock, and there the scene was more striking, for although the houses, from being built of wood, did not fall, they were violently shaken, and the boards creaked and rattled together. The people rushed out of doors in the greatest alarm. It is these accompaniments that create that perfect horror of earthquakes experienced by all who have thus seen, as well as felt, their effects. Within the forest it was deeply interesting, but by no means an awe-exciting phenomenon. The tides were very curiously affected. The great shock took place at the time of low water, and an old woman who was on the beach told me that the water flowed very quickly, but not in great waves, to high-water mark, and then as quickly returned to its proper level. This was also evident by the line of wet sand. The same kind of quick but quiet movement in the tide happened a few years since at Chiloe, during a slight earthquake, and created much causeless alarm. In the course of the evening there were many weaker shocks, which seemed to produce in the harbour the most complicated currents, and some of great strength. March the 4th We entered the harbour of Concepcion. While the ship was beating up to the anchorage, I landed on the island of Kirikina. The mayordomo of the estate quickly rode down to tell me the terrible news of the great earthquake of the 20th, that not a house in Concepcion or Talcahuano, the port, was standing, that seventy villages were destroyed, and that a great wave had almost washed away the ruins of Talcahuano. Of this latter statement I soon saw abundant proofs the whole coast being strewed over with timber and furniture, as if a thousand ships had been wrecked. Besides chairs, tables, bookshelves, etc., in great numbers, there were several roofs of cottages, which had been transported almost whole. The storehouses at Talcoano had been burst open, and great bags of cotton, yerba, and other valuable merchandise were scattered on the shore. During my walk round the island, I observed that numerous fragments of rock, which, from the marine productions adhering to them, must recently have been lying in deep water, had been cast up high on the beach. One of these was six feet long, three broad, and two thick. 
the island itself as plainly showed the overwhelming power of the earthquake as the beach did that of the consequent great wave. The ground in many parts was fissured in north and south lines, perhaps caused by the yielding of the parallel and steep sides of this narrow island. Some of the fissures near the cliffs were a yard wide. Many enormous masses had already fallen on the beach, and the inhabitants thought that when the rains commenced far greater slips would happen. The effect of the vibration on the hard primary slate, which composes the foundation of the island, was still more curious. The superficial parts of some narrow ridges were as completely shivered as if they had been blasted by gunpowder. This effect, which was rendered conspicuous by the fresh fractures and displaced soil, must be confined to near the surface, for otherwise there would not exist a block of solid rock throughout Chile. Nor is this improbable, as it is known that the surface of a vibrating body is affected differently from the central part. It is perhaps owing to this same reason that earthquakes do not cause quite such terrific havoc within deep mines as would be expected. I believe this convulsion has been more effectual in lessening the size of the island of Kirikina than the ordinary wear and tear of the sea and weather during the course of a whole century. The next day I landed at Talcoano, and afterwards rode to Concepcion. Both towns presented the most awful yet interesting spectacle I ever beheld. To a person who had formerly known them, it possibly might have been still more impressive, for the ruins were so mingled together, and the whole scene possessed so little the air of a habitable place, that it was scarcely possible to imagine its former condition. The earthquake commenced at half-past eleven o'clock in the forenoon. If it had happened in the middle of the night, the greater number of the inhabitants, which in this one province must amount to many thousands, must have perished, instead of less than a hundred. As it was, the invariable practice of running out of doors at the first tremble of the ground alone saved them. In Concepcion, each house or row of houses stood by itself, a heap or line of ruins, but in Tacoano, owing to the great wave, little more than one layer of bricks, tiles and timber, with here and there part of a wall left standing, could be distinguished. From this circumstance, Concepcion, although not so completely desolated, was a more terrible, and if I may so call it, picturesque sight. The first shock was very sudden. The mayordomo at Kirikina told me that the first notice he received of it was finding both the horse he rode and himself rolling together on the ground. Rising up, he was again thrown down. He also told me that some cows which were standing on the steep side of the island were rolled into the sea. The great wave caused the destruction of many cattle. On one low island, near the head of the bay, seventy animals were washed off and drowned. It is generally thought that this has been the worst earthquake ever recorded in Chile. But, as the very severe ones occur only after long intervals, this cannot easily be known, nor indeed would a much worse shock have made any difference, for the ruin was now complete. Innumerable small tremblings followed the great earthquake, and, within the first twelve days, no less than three hundred were counted. After viewing Concepcion, I cannot understand how the greater number of inhabitants escaped unhurt. The houses in many parts fell outwards, thus forming in the middle of the streets little hillocks of brickwork and rubbish. Mr. Rouse, the English consul, told us that he was at breakfast when the first movement warned him to run out. He had scarcely reached the middle of the courtyard when one side of his house came thundering down. 
he retained presence of mind to remember that if he once got on the top of that part which had already fallen, he would be safe. Not being able from the motion of the ground to stand, he crawled up on his hands and knees, and no sooner had he ascended this little eminence than the other side of the house fell in, the great beams sweeping close in front of his head. With his eyes blinded and his mouth choked with the cloud of dust which darkened the sky, at last he gained the street. As shock succeeded shock, at the interval of a few minutes, no one dared approach the shattered ruins, and no one knew whether his dearest friends and relations were not perishing from the want of help. Those who had saved any property were obliged to keep a constant watch, for thieves prowled about, and at each little trembling of the ground, with one hand they beat their breasts and cried, Misericordia! and then with the other filched what they could from the ruins. The thatched roofs fell over the fires, and flames burst forth in all parts. Hundreds knew themselves ruined, and few had the means of providing food for the day. Earthquakes alone are sufficient to destroy the prosperity of any country. If beneath England the now inert subterranean forces should exert those powers which most assuredly in former geological ages they have exerted, how completely would the entire condition of the country be changed? What would become of the lofty houses, thickly packed cities, great manufactories, the beautiful public and private edifices? If the new period of disturbance were first to commence by some great earthquake in the dead of the night, how terrific would be the carnage! England would at once be bankrupt. All papers, records, and accounts would from that moment be lost. Government being unable to collect the taxes and failing to maintain its authority, the hand of violence and rapine would remain uncontrolled. In every large town, famine would go forth, pestilence and death following in its train. Shortly after the shock, a great wave was seen from the distance of three or four miles, approaching in the middle of the bay with a smooth outline. But along the shore, it tore up cottages and trees as it swept onwards with irresistible force. At the head of the bay, it broke in a fearful line of white breakers, which rushed up to a height of twenty-three vertical feet above the highest spring tides. Their force must have been prodigious, for at the fort, a cannon with its carriage, estimated at four tons in weight, was moved fifteen feet inwards. A schooner was left in the midst of the ruins, two hundred yards from the beach. The first wave was followed by two others, which in their retreat carried away a vast wreck of floating objects. In one part of the bay, a ship was pitched high and dry on shore, was carried off, again driven on shore, and again carried off. In another part, two large vessels anchored near together were rolled about, and their cables were thrice wound round each other. Though anchored at a depth of thirty-six feet, they were for some minutes aground. The great wave must have travelled slowly, for the inhabitants of Talcahuano had time to run up the hills behind the town, and some sailors pulled out seaward trusting successfully to their boat riding securely over the swell, if they could reach it before it broke. One old woman with a little boy, four or five years old, ran into a boat, but there was nobody to row it out. The boat was consequently dashed against an anchor and cut in twain. The old woman was drowned, but the child was picked up some hours afterwards, clinging to the wreck. Pools of salt water were still standing amidst the ruins of the houses, and children, making boats with old tables and chairs, appeared as happy as their parents were miserable. It was, however, exceedingly interesting to observe how much more active and cheerful all appeared than could have been expected. It was remarked with much truth that from the destruction being universal, 
no one individual was humbled more than another, or could suspect his friends of coldness, that most grievous result of the loss of wealth. Mr. Rouse and the large party whom he kindly took under his protection lived for the first week in a garden beneath some apple-trees. At first they were as merry as if it had been a picnic, but soon afterwards heavy rain caused much discomfort, for they were absolutely without shelter. In Captain Fitzroy's excellent account of the earthquake, it is said that two explosions, one like a column of smoke and another and another like the blowing of a great whale, were seen in the bay. The water also appeared everywhere to be boiling, and it became black and exhaled a most disagreeable sulphurous smell. These latter circumstances were observed in the Bay of Valparaiso during the earthquake of 1822. They may, I think, be accounted for by the disturbance of the mud at the bottom of the sea containing organic matter in decay. In the Bay of Calao, during a calm day, I noticed that as the ship dragged her cable over the bottom, its course was marked by a line of bubbles. The lower orders in Talcahuana thought that the earthquake was caused by some old Indian women, who, two years ago, being offended, stopped the volcano of Antuco. This silly belief is curious, because it shows that experience has taught them to observe that there exists a relation between the suppressed action of the volcanoes and the trembling of the ground. It was necessary to apply the witchcraft to the point where their perception of cause and effect failed, and this was the closing of the volcanic vent. This belief is the more singular in this particular instance, because, according to Captain Fitzroy, there is reason to believe that Antico was no ways affected. The town of Concepcion was built in the usual Spanish fashion, with all the streets running at right angles to each other, one set ranging southwest by west, and the other set northwest by north. The walls in the former direction certainly stood better than those in the latter, the greater number of the masses of brickwork were thrown down towards the northeast. Both these circumstances perfectly agree with the general idea of the undulations having come from the southwest, in which quarter subterranean noises were also heard, for it is evident that the walls running southwest and northeast, which presented their ends to the point whence the undulations came, would be much less likely to fall than those walls which, running northwest and southeast, must in their whole length have been at the same instant thrown out of the perpendicular, for the undulations coming from the southwest must have extended in northwest and southeast waves as they passed under the foundations. This may be illustrated by placing books edgeways on a carpet and then, after the manner suggested by Michel, imitating the undulations of an earthquake. It will be found that they fall with more or less readiness, according as their direction more or less nearly coincides with the line of the waves. The fissures in the ground generally, though not uniformly, extended in a southeast and northwest direction, and therefore corresponded to the lines of undulation or of principal flexure. Bearing in mind all these circumstances, which so clearly point to the southwest as the chief focus of disturbance, it is a very interesting fact that the island of Santa Maria, situated in that quarter, was, during the general uplifting of the land, raised to nearly three times the height of any other part of the coast. The different resistance offered by the walls, according to their direction, was well exemplified in the case of the cathedral. The side which fronted the northeast presented a grand pile of ruins, in the midst of which door-cases and masses of timber stood up, as if floating in a stream. Some of the angular blocks of brickwork were of great dimensions, 
and they were rolled to a distance on the level plaza like fragments of rock at the base of some high mountain. The side walls, running southwest and northeast, though exceedingly fractured, yet remained standing. But the vast buttresses, at right angles to them, and therefore parallel to the walls that fell, were in many cases cut clean off as if by a chisel, and hurled to the ground. Some square ornaments on the coping of these same walls were moved by the earthquake into a diagonal position. A similar circumstance was observed after an earthquake at Valparaiso, Calabria, and other places, including some of the ancient Greek temples. This twisting displacement at first appears to indicate a vorticose movement beneath each point thus affected, but this is highly improbable. May it not be caused by a tendency in each stone to arrange itself in some particular position with respect to the lines of vibration, in a manner somewhat similar to pins on a sheet of paper when shaken? Generally speaking, arched doorways or windows stood much better than any other part of the buildings. Nevertheless, a poor lame old man who had been in the habit during trifling shocks of crawling to a certain doorway was this time crushed to pieces. I have not attempted to give any detailed description of the appearance of Concepcion, for I feel that it is quite impossible to convey the mingled feelings which I experienced. Several of the officers visited it before me, but their strongest language failed to give a just idea of the scene of desolation. It is a bitter and humiliating thing to see works which have cost man so much time and labour overthrown in one minute. Yet compassion for the inhabitants was almost instantly banished by the surprise in seeing a state of things produced in a moment of time which one was accustomed to attribute to a succession of ages. In my opinion, we have scarcely beheld, since leaving England, any sight so deeply interesting. In almost every severe earthquake, the neighbouring waters of the sea are said to have been greatly agitated. The disturbance seems generally, as in the case of Concepcion, to have been of two kinds. First, at the instant of the shock, the water swells high upon the beach with a gentle motion, and then as quietly retreats. Secondly, some time afterwards, the whole body of the sea retires from the coast, and then returns in waves of overwhelming force. The first movement seems to be an immediate consequence of the earthquake, affecting differently a fluid and a solid, so that their respective levels are slightly deranged. But the second case is a far more important phenomenon. During most earthquakes, and especially during those on the west coast of America, it is certain that the first great movement of the waters has been a retirement. Some authors have attempted to explain this by supposing that the water retains its level whilst the land oscillates upwards. But surely the water close to the land, even on a rather steep coast, would partake of the motion of the bottom. Moreover, as urged by Mr. Lyle, Similar movements of the sea have occurred at islands far distant from the chief line of disturbance, as was the case with Juan Fernandez during this earthquake, and with Madeira during the famous Lisbon shock. I suspect, but the subject is a very obscure one, that a wave, however produced, first draws the water from the shore, on which it is advancing to break. I have observed that this happens with the little waves from the paddles of a steamboat. It is remarkable that whilst Tacuano and Calao, near Lima, both situated at the head of large shallow bays, have suffered during every severe earthquake from great waves. Valparaiso, seated close to the edge of profoundly deep water, has never been overwhelmed, though so often shaken by the severest shocks. 
From the great wave not immediately following the earthquake, but sometimes after the interval of even half an hour, and from distant islands being affected similarly with the coasts near the focus of the disturbance, it appears that the wave first rises in the offing, and, as this is of general occurrence, the cause must be general. I suspect we must look to the line where the less disturbed waters of the deep ocean join the water nearer the coast, which has partaken of the movements of the land, as the place where the great wave is first generated. It would also appear that the wave is larger or smaller, according to the extent of shoal water, which has been agitated together with the bottom on which it rested. The most remarkable effect of this earthquake was the permanent elevation of the land. It would probably be far more correct to speak of it as the cause. There can be no doubt that the land round the Bay of Concepcion was upraised two or three feet, but it deserves notice that, owing to the wave having obliterated the old lines of tidal action on the sloping sandy shores, I could discover no evidence of this fact, except in the united testimony of the inhabitants that one little rocky shoal now exposed was formerly covered with water. At the island of Santa Maria, about thirty miles distant, the elevation was greater. On one part, Captain Fitzroy found beds of putrid mussel shells still adhering to the rocks, ten feet above high water mark. The inhabitants had formerly dived at low water spring tides for these shells. The elevation of this province is particularly interesting from its having been the theatre of several other violent earthquakes, and from the vast number of sea-shells scattered over the land up to a height of certainly six hundred, and I believe of one thousand feet. At Valparaiso, as I have remarked, similar shells are found at the height of thirteen hundred feet. It is hardly possible to doubt that this great elevation has been affected by successive small uprisings, such as that which accompanied or caused the earthquake of this year, and likewise by an insensibly slow rise which is certainly in progress on some parts of this coast. The island of Juan Fernandez, 360 miles to the northeast, was, at the time of the great shock of the 20th, violently shaken, so that the trees beat against each other, and a volcano burst forth under water close to the shore. These facts are remarkable because this island, during the earthquake of 1751, was then also affected more violently than other places at an equal distance from Concepcion, and this seems to show some subterranean connection between these two points. Chiloé, about 340 miles southward of Concepcion, appears to have been shaken more strongly than the intermediate district of Valdivia, where the volcano of Villarica was no ways affected, whilst in the Cordillera in front of Chiloé, two of the volcanoes burst forth at the same instant in violent action. These two volcanoes, and some neighbouring ones, continued for a long time in eruption, and ten months afterwards were again influenced by an earthquake at Concepcion. Some men, cutting wood near the base of one of these volcanoes, did not perceive the shock of the twentieth, although the whole surrounding province was then trembling. Here we have an eruption relieving and taking the place of an earthquake, as would have happened at Concepcion, according to the belief of the lower orders, if the volcano at Antuco had not been closed by witchcraft. Two years and three-quarters afterwards, Valdivia and Chiloé were again shaken, more violently than on the 20th, and an island in the Honos Archipelago was permanently elevated more than eight feet. It will give a better idea of the scale of these phenomena, if, as in the case of the glaciers, we suppose them to have taken place at corresponding distances in Europe. 
then would the land from the North Sea to the Mediterranean have been violently shaken, and at the same instant of time a large tract of the eastern coast of England would have been permanently elevated, together with some outlying islands. A train of volcanoes on the coast of Holland would have burst forth in action, and an eruption taken place at the bottom of the sea near the northern extremity of Ireland. And lastly, the ancient vents of Auvergne, Cantal, and Mondor would each have sent up to the sky a dark column of smoke, and have long remained in fierce action. Two years and three-quarters afterwards, France, from its centre to the English Channel, would have been again desolated by an earthquake, and an island permanently upraised in the Mediterranean. The space from under which volcanic matter on the 20th was actually erupted is 720 miles in one line and 400 miles in another line at right angles to the first. Hence, in all probability, a subterranean lake of lava is here stretched out of nearly double the area of the Black Sea. From the intimate and complicated manner in which the elevatory and eruptive forces were shown to be connected during this train of phenomena, we may confidently come to the conclusion that the forces which slowly and by little starts uplift continents, and those which at successive periods pour forth volcanic matter from open orifices, are identical. From many reasons, I believe that the frequent quakings of the earth on this line of coast are caused by the rending of the strata, necessarily consequent on the tension of the land when upraised, and their injection by fluidified rock. This rending and injection would, if repeated often enough, and we know that earthquakes repeatedly affect the same areas in the same manner, form a chain of hills, and the linear island of Santa Maria, which was upraised thrice the height of the neighboring country, seems to be undergoing this process. I believe that the solid axis of a mountain differs in its manner of formation from a volcanic hill only in the molten stone having been repeatedly injected instead of having been repeatedly ejected. Moreover, I believe that it is impossible to explain the structure of great mountain chains, such as that of the Cordillera, where the strata, capping the injected axis of plutonic rock, have been thrown on their edges along several parallel and neighboring lines of elevation, except on this view of the rock of the axis having been repeatedly injected, after intervals sufficiently long to allow the upper parts or wedges to cool and become solid. For, if the strata had been thrown into their present highly inclined, vertical, and even inverted positions by a single blow, the very bowels of the earth would have gushed out, and, instead of beholding abrupt mountain axes of rock solidified under great pressure, deluges of lava would have flowed out at innumerable points on every line of elevation.' 